Last time I was here, we began the story of John the Baptizer, so I thought we'd uh, come now to his, his birth. And uh, we're getting closer to the Christmas season as well, and this story is sort of tied up in all of that. So uh, hopefully this evening, uh, the Holy Spirit will speak to us all as we open Scripture together. We're looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. And then especially at verse 66, which I think is one of those, those enduring gems of Scripture that uh, we should know and bring out, especially at times of birth and baptism. And this says something uh, very sustaining and gracious about our triune God. Uh, Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Brothers and sisters, freshmen and sophomores, in a social studies class at St. Joseph Ogden High School, just east of Champaign, were asked to make life and death decisions concerning people they'd never met. The lesson began by telling students that 10 people shared a serious problem. Without access to a dialysis machine, they would all die. They were told the local hospital only has enough machines for six of them. The assignment was to decide who got the treatment and who didn't, who was worth saving, who not. The students were asked to rank the patients from one, the person they most wanted to receive the treatment, to ten, the person they least wanted. And all they knew about the people was age, race, and occupation. There was a housewife, doctor, lawyer, disabled person, police officer, teacher, minister, college student, ex-convict, and prostitute. When a mother of one of the students learned about the assignment, she thought about how her own family would fare in this exercise. Her family has an autistic child, and an elderly bedridden mother. So she contacted the school and complained about the assignment. 
She, she shared, I'm a special needs advocate, and I deal with the denial of services on a daily basis in my own home. I live this. The assignment was a lesson in utilitarian ethics. The students were being taught that life can be valued by others, by you, that their worth and their dignity can be valued on the basis of what a person can contribute to society. And it's a lesson they took to heart. The students' choices reflected the person's social prestige and or age. The top three were doctor, lawyer, and teacher. I guess if you want to get a good grade, you have to vote for the teacher, right? The bottom three were college student, sorry to say for your college students, ex-convict, and disabled person. Contrast that lesson with the birth of John. And as the people gathered around Elizabeth and Zechariah, they praised God and wondered about the high value of each life when they asked, what then is this child going to be? Faith is saying this about our triune God. Life matters deeply to God. The Lord grants high value to every life. This child, this life, didn't have to be, but is. There is a godly purpose for this child. There is value in each life. And they never stopped reminding one another that the Lord's hand was with this child in mercy and grace. Life is blessed by God for God's purposes. What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. The way to hear this question is in all its wonder and grace. In view of God's power and mercy and grace, what wonderful blessing is this child going to be? Are you to be? Let me ask you, who has ever asked that question that way about you? About whom have you ever asked that question that way? Who became that special blessing and grace of God to you that looked at you and saw the value that God had placed on your life and went out of their way to serve, to support, to love, to care? Because this question lived in their heart toward you. What then are you going to be? because the Lord's hand is with you. We as a church ask this question of each new child, of teens who gather in our youth groups and those who refuse to gather, of young adults with us and of those who have left us. How do we better help our children and our young people experience this grace? Well, Ron Nidham suggests that it's time for us to understand that our young people don't experience God in the same way their parents' generation does. Let me ask you, teen and young adults, here's, here's the thing you can do when you get home. Ask your parents or ask your grandparents to summarize the Reformed faith in one word. C 
see what that word is. And I would guess that most likely the word they would tell you that our Reformed faith has a lot to do, has a lot to be about, is it'll, it'll be a word like the word relief. Heard it even tonight as Pastor Greg welcomed us, talked about getting through the storm. Relief. Relief kind of lives in us. It's something that unites us together. It's part of who we are. It's part of your parents' and your grandparents' thoughts in terms of the blessing that God brings to us. Relief. We take comfort in the heartfelt knowledge that our sins are forgiven, that God remembers them no more, and instead we are adopted as heirs into God's kingdom. We are relieved from guilt and forgiven by God. A burden is lifted. The burden of failing, of not making the grade, of not keeping the commandments, of not being good, and we are restored to goodness, to God, and to ourselves. Relief. For our young people, guilt is not the problem. Oh, it is, but it's not something they see yet. It's something they have to mature into yet. Those foundational ideas of guilt, of misery, of sin don't resonate so quickly in the life of a young person. That's why catechism is so hard for them. Young people do not, by and large, feel guilty today. They feel empty. And that is a different thing. We saw this again on late-night television a few weeks ago when Conan asked the comedian Louis C.K., why he won't let his kids have, self, have smartphones. How do you handle that, Conan asked. And he said, well, I just say no. You can't have it. They're bad for you. Well, what happens when your child says, I want one? He says, I'm your dad. I don't care what you want. And the crowd laughed a little nervously about that. But then he said this. He said, I'm not there to make my kids happy because I'm not raising children. I'm raising the grown-ups they're going to be. And he went on to say, those phones are toxic because you don't look at people when you Facebook them or tweet or text them so you don't build empathy. Kids can be mean because they're trying it out. They're finding their social powers. So a kid will say to another kid in in the school hallway, you're ugly. But when that kid starts to cry or feels hurt, That doesn't feel so good to make a person feel that, so you might not do it again. But when you text on a phone that so-and-so is ugly, or post that on Facebook, and all your friends praise you for being so bold, well, that feels good, and you don't see how it hurts. And just a month ago or so, we heard the story out of Florida about Rebecca, age 12, who had been cyber-bullied for 10 months by female classmates who told her that she was ugly and that she should go kill herself. After Rebecca jumped off a silo at an abandoned cement plant on September 9th, police said one older girl posted further messages on Facebook admitting, yes, I know, I bullied Rebecca and she killed herself but I don't care. 
Louis C.K. went on to say, we are attracted to the phones because we can't bear to be alone. Hear that. There's this place inside that says life is empty and needs filling. See? Their primary spiritual struggle is not with guilt just yet or forgiveness. Their primary struggle is about mattering to someone and about meaning something to oneself and to one's peers and to God. If you feel empty, you may feel that you do not matter very much. Grandparents, you might want to address this in your prayers at family gatherings and celebrations, where you have been praying rightly, thanking God for his forgiveness given in Jesus Christ, you might want to change the language, thanking Jesus for the fullness that he brings, the purpose his coming brings to each life. And you might want to share a story about that in your own life, For Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the full. And that's what the story of John brings out. Notice how the whole community understands that his life has special meaning. Why? Well, because they know John didn't have to be. Look at verse 58. Her, Elizabeth, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. This new life was given to parents beyond the age of conception. He was given in the joyful mercy of God alone. John didn't have to be. So because he is, there must be a reason for him. His life must matter, and not merely to joyful parents who never thought they'd have a child, but also to God, because his life was a gift from God. Can we apply this to our own lives as well? In some real sense, we can. We admit that you and I certainly did not have to be either. What if Grandpa never emigrated? What if your parents never met? What if your mom said no instead of yes to marrying your dad? Some moms are thinking about that right now. (laughs) And soon it dawns on us that this whole world, none of it had to be. It was created by the mercy and grace of God alone. God didn't have to create. God didn't have to give you life, but the Lord sure did. So you must matter an awful lot to our Father in heaven Your life has value and meaning in his kingdom because you didn't have to be, and yet here you are. God has a reason for you, not for yourself, not for your own glory or accomplishment, but for the Lord's purposes, to be a witness of Christ's love and a servant of the gospel. So can we hear again the question, Asked all throughout Judea at the birth of John. Can we hear it asked in our community and asked of each of us, what then is this child going to be? Because the Lord's hand is with him. Hear it? There must be a godly reason for him. It's a fitting song at every birth. It's a fitting question of wonder for each and every person in this room. It's a first response 
we should make with every stranger that we meet, each new person in our life or fellowship or neighborhood. Zechariah makes sure people get that when he obeys the Lord and names the boy John. The baby is delivered, and now he must be named. And the men of the Judean community have little side wagers going on. Will he be named after his father, his mother's dad, a great uncle? But no, his name shall be John. And the whole town is astonished, not because John is such an awful name, I happen to know, but because nobody saw this coming either. Nobody won the pool. Nobody picked the name. There's no one in your family with that name, they say. What they're trying to ask is, why John, of all names? And as Zechariah signals that, yes, he is called John, he can finally speak again. It's as if the Lord is telling us, we've got nothing to say until we recognize the value and purpose of the life that is there in front of us. That my life is not mine, and your life is not for me, but each brings the blessing of Jesus into this broken world. The story tells us, because Jesus has come in his saving grace, that we too, each one of us, bears a godly design and a godly purpose. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. His name is John. We said last time a month ago, that means the Lord is gracious. His name points not back to his father and family, but up and out to God, who gives life, and fills that life with the holy purposes of Jesus. Can we also be astonished by this grace? Parents, tell your children. And spiritual moms and dads here too, tell our community children that their lives are not for their own wishes or mom and dad's plans, but God's glory. I suspect that we sense the emptiness in our children and young people, that you feel somewhat empty, at times despairing too, having lived in this day and age of wars and deceptions and everyone out for themselves and the pressure to succeed. So we rush to fill that emptiness, but not with the things of God. We want our kids to have the toys of culture. We want them to fit in. We want them to get good educations, to get good jobs, to have good families, to not go without. So let the naming of John astonish us again. For the emptiness in our children and young people won't be filled by being a slave to our culture. What our children need is not to fit in but to know they are valued by God. Our kids will survive going without, but they won't survive going without God. A good job is neither here nor there as long as they know the good works for which God has prepared them. 
So notice his name, John. The Lord is gracious. Every time he's called for dinner or told to help with the dishes or get ready for worship, mom and dad are saying, John, they're saying the Lord is gracious. They're filling him with, the, with God's meaning for his life. Not the pressures of society to be a certain kind of person or do certain kind of things, but to take up the purposes of God. Your life, too, has holy purposes. God's brought people into your life for you to bless them. And you may not see how or or know why that is or how that's going to take place, but we are just called to be faithful. So to ask well, what then is this child going to be? We must not forget what comes after it. In verse 66, for the Lord's hand was with him. The Lord's hand is with you. You are not alone or on your own in this. In the Harry Potter book, The Half-Blood Prince, Harry comes to this resolve about himself. He must abandon forever the illusion that the shelter of his parents' arms meant that nothing could hurt him. There was no comforting whisper in the dark that he was safe, really. He was more alone than he had ever been before. If there is one story this new generation of children know, it is Harry's, because they feel like Harry. They need to know from us they are not alone. But that's hard to tell children who don't know who their dad is or who only see mom on every other weekend or eat dinner alone with the television for a companion or don't belong to a Sunday school or youth group or don't know an adult Christian by name or have an adult Christian who knows her by name. We could do well in our churches if we who have some gray hairs or who are starting to get them or who have long covered them up spend time learning the names of the children in the church so when they run around the foyer, we can, we can greet them by name and signal to them, you are not alone. The Lord's hand was with him. The Lord is with you. What a blessing to give. It turns out that this old story is one we have been yearning to hear. Will we in bold faith now apply it to ourselves? What resolve must you make tonight? What prayers must be said with renewed vigor? What sacrifices of time and resources have you put off too long? Here are some ideas. Young people, young adults, you may not know it, but the older generation cares deeply for you. They would do anything for you to know the saving love of the Lord and to experience his caring presence in your life. But that doesn't mean giving you what you want, but calling you to be who you are a child of God. And I think sometimes young people and young adults forget that, mainly because we don't know each other's stories 
and the obstacles of generations get in the way. Young adults want our older generations to share our wounds, to tell about our failings and our regrets. The older generation doesn't want to share those stories. They want to encourage our younger generation to be better than we were. Not to do better, not to do more, but to be better in faith and trust and obedience. So you live in the relief of God's deliverance. Young adults want to be affirmed in all they say and do. The older generation sees grace as more lasting and so challenges young adults to repentance and grace toward others. So there's a gap to bridge there, isn't there? How are we going to do that? How about those of us who are older tell some faith stories to those who are younger? A few weeks ago in our church, we had Mel Yonkman, the director of Chicago Christian Counseling Center, and as he led our adult education group, he asked those in attendance to raise their hand if they could name all their great-grandparents. Just name them. And we had a group maybe about this size, and like one or two hands went up. How quickly we forget those who went before us. So how about we tell some stories? Grandparents, if you could tell a story about your parents and their faith, your grandkids will have heard about their great-grandparents. And young adults, when you don't know what to say when you're out here in the foyer after church and it's not quite time to go and you find yourself talking to someone you don't know, how about asking, what was it like to go to church when you were 20? And how did you experience God? That's one thing we could do, share our stories. A story like this gives us motivation as well as a church to support and participate in community and denominational ministries, supporting Christian schools, working in our community schools, our mission support, our pro-life work, and many other causes. Since each life matters to God, so the lives of others must matter to us who follow the Savior. But that takes more than an offering, doesn't it? It takes our loving kindness and our participation. Now, you and I can't do everything, but how about we choose one ministry if we haven't, and then follow through? And you don't have to wait till you're older to do this. How about right now? How about even when you're in college or right after? Because God's hand is on you and with you. You too are called by God, even if you're limited, even in disappointment and setback, to serve. So what is God saying in your heart? What ministry? Maybe it's time for you to be part of that in valuing the lives of those around us in the glory of God. And then last, let us remember tonight God's promises given at your baptism. 
before you could do anything but receive, we kind of reenacted this verse. And the promise of God was given. And people smiled and they wondered, what then will this child be? Because they could see and be reminded again that the Lord's hand was with you, with each of us. And so let us take to heart the wonder of this profound verse. What then is this child going to be? Because the Lord's hand is with him. Because the Lord Jesus is with us, with you. Amen.